Hi friends, welcome to the Friends of France podcast. In this safe space, we are favored in each episode with the presence of an expert guest from different fields and specialties as we learn about their life journeys, their successes, possible regrets, and realizations, their work, why they do what they do, and even their life outside of work. In here, we tear down common myths and misinformation with up-to-date, evidence-based science and data simplified for anyone to digest. We don't shy away from topics that can sometimes be polarizing or taboo. We normalize the humanization of healthcare and its workers, and we promote the importance of self-care and safeguarding your mental health. Please keep in mind that the conversations in this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. They are not implied or intended to be a substitute for professional medical diagnosis, advice, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers regarding a medical condition. Are you ready? Let's go! Hi everyone, it's Friday and it is officially the month of March! Spring is soon approaching us, especially us here in New York City, but I don't really know what to think about that because we literally just had a semi-snowstorm the other night. We didn't have a white Christmas at all, but I feel like all the heavens have been holding on to some sort of snow and are ready to release them any second. And because of all of these weather changes, your boy has been sick. Last week, I had to call off of work because I was so congested and I felt feverish, even though I didn't have a fever. I just felt so weak, couldn't get up, so dizzy, tested negative for COVID several times. So there's really something going on around, whether it's just pure weather change and my body can't adapt to it, or there's really a lot of other viruses other than the Rona going around. And I just couldn't speak properly because I just had phlegm in my throat and the nose was congested and I had sore throat and I don't know if I said this before but growing up I had recurrent tonsillitis and so I hated getting sick because each time my throat would be just taking my life away. So painful. I always tell my mom that I should have gotten my tonsils out when I was younger because I've seen videos now and I've heard of People around my age have gotten them out and said it's the worst and most painful thing ever. So we will not do that. (laughs) But anyways, trying to bring back of what I just said, it was so hard to speak. Obviously, it's hyperbole because I can speak. But, you know, this statement is quite related to our topic for today and our guest for today. We're going to talk about all things speech and language and the ability to communicate. You know, the ability to communicate is such a gift and such a powerful thing. We can express what we feel, our thoughts, anything aching us, anything that's making us happy, anything that we like, that we want, that we need. Whether it's through voice, we say it vocally, or through signs of our hands, or we write it down. Whether in English or another language that another person can relate to and understand. But you know, there are such things as speech disorders and language disorders, or even physical problems and conditions that result in the inability to speak or speak fluently and make sounds correctly or 
to perceive and to share language, such as let's say someone has a stroke and it might be harder for them to speak because of the physiological damages that it has done to the body or things like aphasia or things like injuries and traumas and accidents that you know may impede one's ability to speak or to perceive what others are speaking. And this is a very important topic, and it is one that is not really talked about, especially about the field, the expert guest that we have, a speech-language pathologist. A speech-language pathologist, it may not be the first thought that people may think of when it comes to someone who needs help with language or needs to redress issues when it comes to speech. Most people may automatically think about neurologists or ENTs, but we often forget about the actual experts when it comes to speech and language, which are the SLPs. And we talk about this with our expert guest today, Joanne. You'll come to hear that she said that she hopes one day SLPs will be a household name in healthcare, specifically when it comes to the practice of speech and performing language, whether it's through voice or through sounds or through signs made by our hands and other parts of the body. And also swallowing disorders, I think many people tend to not know and forget that SLPs are also the experts when it comes to swallowing disorders and dysphagia. So as you all know, I used to work in a cardiac surgery step-down unit in the hospital. And you know, many of these patients have been intubated in the OR and coming out of anesthesia and recovering. They're usually in very soft diet. And as we try to transition them back into regular diet, they always need clearance to eat Again, solid foods. Yes, from SLP. So this episode was recorded last May, which is designated as Better Hearing and Speech Month. And so I thought, who else to bring but an expert of hearing and speech, which is an SLP like Joanne, as I mentioned. According to the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, or ASHA, A-S-H-A, 5-10% to of Americans may have difficulties in communication, which ranges from speech disorders, which is defined to be the inability to correctly or fluently produce voice and sound, and language disorders, which are defined to be impairments with understanding and sharing ideas, feelings, thoughts, wants, and needs with others through language. So this is a very pressing topic that we need to talk about because do the people that we love or the people we get to meet, can they actually understand what we're trying to say sometimes? Can we really communicate? Are we treating them fairly? Are we addressing their needs if it's not in a speech or in a language way that we can understand or that we are not used to? As healthcare workers, are we providing the right and the adequate modalities and the services so that we can allow and we can make sure that people who have impairments with speech or language or even hearing, that their thoughts and needs and their wants are being expressed and are being delivered. You know, Joanne is not only a certified SLP and a private practice director and owner, uh, hello, boss lady of Kose Speech Therapy in Bergen County, New Jersey. She's also an early interventionist because she specializes in children and infant toddlers and adolescents when it comes to speech and language pathologies, you know, or conditions and problems. Another statistic that we have is that around 5% of children in the United States have noticeable disorders with speech. And we extrapolate that to over 3 million of Americans who stutter. It is just a sad truth that there are those who cannot fully voice out 
what they're thinking in their minds, what they're feeling, what they want to say, the joys that they have, the pains that they have. And it is so important that we understand where these roots from and how we can address them. Everyone deserves their voice to be heard, whether it's the voice of their mind or their physical voice. And if there is an impairment with their actual and physical voice or the fluency of their language, we should understand them. We're humans and we all deserve to be heard and all our wants and needs deserve to be heard and listened to. So I'm so, so honored to have this episode. I'm so excited for you to meet our guest who is just an amazing person. And I hope you get to learn a lot today. And I hope that this conversation can be continued across social media and across all platforms so that we can resound the importance of communication, the want and the need to communicate, and the ability for us to foster inclusivity and diversity when it comes to better catering to others who may have problems when it comes to voicing out what we really feel. Have a good day, everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for joining me in this space tonight. Can you believe it's been like a few months already since we planned this? I know. I feel like we've been talking about it for a while and we've been following each other for a while. So I'm happy to be here and grateful that you invited me. Yeah, May is a very important month, which is why we plan to do this. I was just looking at the calendar and I reviewed messages and I'm like, wait, it's been that long since we started. Time is just like flying. The calendar is just like flying over the window and I can handle it. But anyways, May is Better Hearing and Speech Month by ASHA. And I have it here. It's American Speech Language Hearing Association. So this is your month. You could first please introduce yourself to us. Thank you so much again for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. So my name is Joanne Wesley Cazo, and I'm a pediatric speech language pathologist and an early interventionist. And I'm also the owner of the private practice Cozay Speech Therapy. And it is a pediatric speech language pathology practice that's based out in Bergen county new jersey so that's a little there bit we go yeah, yeah so like i said may is better hearing and speech month yeah. and there's no better person to talk to than someone within the field of speech right so i feel like speech language pathology is one of those aka hidden gems within healthcare right yeah there's people who know about the field there's some people who may not know what it is or are asking, is it speech therapy? Is speech language pathology the same thing? Yeah. Is it the same thing? So I'm happy to get into the nomenclature. So first I'll kind of talk about our fields and what we do. So speech language pathology is our field and we are speech language pathologists. Speech language pathologists are professionals who work to assess, diagnose, and treat speech, language, social communication, cognitive communication, and swallowing disorders. I know that was a mouthful. So I'm happy to give some examples. Some people might really be wondering what those disorders look like and what the presentations look like. So a person who has disordered speech may have some difficulty producing specific sounds or producing speech fluently. So they might stutter or clutter, or they might have difficulty with using their voice and they might have difficulty using their voice because of trauma 
or injury or abuse or misuse. So you might see clients who have vocal nodules or vocal polyps coming in for speech therapy. A person who has disordered language might have trouble understanding language, following directions, answering questions. They might also have trouble producing language. So really putting words together in order to communicate thoughts and feelings and wants and needs. Someone who has disordered social communication might really have trouble with the social use of language, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. So understanding gestures, facial expressions, things like that. And then someone who has disordered cognition or cognitive communication really has trouble with planning, organizing their thoughts. They might have some trouble with memory and that can result from either injury to the brain or some kind of other etiology. And then the last one is swallowing disorder. So somebody who has disordered swallowing or dysphagia will have trouble with feeding and swallowing. And that also can occur from an injury or illness or stroke or even surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. And I love that we're getting into the nomenclature because so I used to work in the hospital in the cardiac surgery recovery unit. So Mm -hmm. it's either the patients had a ventilator, right? through their throat or a handful of our patients were also stroke patients. So the underlying issue is always the return to eating the same solid foods that they used to be able to eat. Are they cleared to switch from the liquid or smooth diet back to solid foods? And the question that is always asked before we eat our patients again is, did speech see them? Did speech therapy see them? And it's such an integral part to many diverse populations relations of patients right and different types of patients and different specialties so i love that we are going to delve into your amazing field tonight and again thank you again for being here and of course thank you now the question that i always ask is how did you get into this field of speech language pathology and usually what i like to ask is how was the academic journey going here you know one of the main reasons why i started the series is as you know being on social media there is so much misinformation and disinformation about every single topic (laughs) available, Mm -hmm. right? Especially within the field of healthcare. The thing with our field of healthcare is there's people's lives and well-being involved, right? Mm -hmm. And misinformation can be very, very detrimental and dangerous because you see something, you hear something, and people believe it, and it might not be the right. Right. So Mm -hmm. I thought, why don't we give the actual space to people who are educated and trained in different fields and can rightfully answer the questions that people may have. So speech language pathology, how is the academic and training journey going into this field? Yeah, you first start out with a bachelor's degree in either communication sciences and disorders Mm -hmm. or speech and hearing sciences or a related field or actually a non-related field. I know Mm -hmm. people were like, you know, previously engineers or they did other things and they were in other professions but decided Mm -hmm. to transition into speech. Mm -hmm. So once you get your bachelor's degree, you have to make sure that you have acquired all of the required courses. So those will include courses in biological sciences, behavioral sciences, physical sciences, etc. So you're like your bios, your chems, your physics, mm-hmm. your stats, etc. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a field that is related, or if you don't have a bachelor's degree that is related to speech language pathology, then you would go back and do a post-baccalaureate program mm-hmm. or a post-bac program, and you would get some of that educational experience. And then you would complete a master's program in speech language pathology. Mm-hmm. And then you have to complete your university 
university comps, which are really hard sometimes. <laughs> um, and then you would have to pass the praxis. So the praxis is like our board exam. It would be mm-hmm. the equivalent of the NCLEX, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you would pass your praxis and then you'd be on your road to licensure and certification. There we yeah. go. And I think with yeah. a lot oh, of Oh, the- wait, wait, wait. I forgot a step. <laughs> I forgot a step. You don't listen to me because I forgot a step. So- <laughs> After you pass your practice, you have to complete your clinical fellowship. There we um, go. So the clinical fellowship is like, yeah, you see, you were going to catch me. Um, so your clinical fellowship is almost like residency, right? So mm-hmm. it's where you really get to get hands-on experience, mm-hmm. but you have supervision. So that's before, so you get your clinical fellowship and then you would get your licensure and then go on the path to certification. Got it. And with those clinicals, are you like exposed to different age groups already? Yeah. So actually during our grad school program, we have Mm -hmm. clinical rotations every single semester. And ideally during your grad school clinical rotations, you would have had experience and a variety of different settings working with a variety of different populations. And then your clinical fellowship, that's really your choice. So you make the choice of places Mm -hmm. to apply, what populations you want Mm -hmm. to work with. Mm -hmm. Got it. Beautiful. And now where did this inspiration for entering the field of speech come from? Is it like a family member, a friend, personal experience? So it's kind of like a topsy-turvy little story. (laughs) Um, So I moved here originally from Haiti Mm -hmm. when I was about nine. So when I moved here, the district had me assess and the person who assessed me was a speech language pathologist. I didn't know it then, but I realized quickly after. So that was a speech language pathologist. In my experience was not glamorous. I was actually not assessed appropriately. I wasn't mm-hmm. English speaking at all. I didn't speak any English, mm-hmm. but my entire assessment was in English. And so, yeah, so it was a very traumatizing yeah. experience. I cried the entire time. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what was being said to me. And I tried to communicate like, I don't understand what you're saying, but the assessment just kept on going. And the speech language pathologist kept prompting me to answer questions and point to pictures where I really had no idea what I was even experiencing. You know, lo and behold, the recommendations that were suggested and provided were not appropriate. They were grossly Mm -hmm. inaccurate. And I think that had I not had people advocating for me in that time and in that space, that maybe potentially we would not be having this conversation. Um, And I think that the academic placement would have also been really inappropriate because it would have leaned into special education and really over qualifying me for services that I didn't need. Whereas, you know, if a dynamic assessment was administered and if a bilingual assessment was administered, it would have been Mm -hmm. a different experience. So I think that from that experience, one, I knew what a speech pathologist was. And two, even at nine years old, I understood that if it could happen to me, that it could potentially happen to Mm -hmm. other children who were um, Mm -hmm. moving into the United States and that were non-English speaking. So that's what really cued my curiosity into speech. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had it in the back of my mind and I thought you know maybe if someone looked like me in that position Mm -hmm. then potentially that would not have happened so I had speech in the back of my mind I still after I still pursued my undergraduate degree thinking that I wanted to major in biology and be a pre-med student Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we might be talking about like regrets or different paths a little later (laughs) in that conversation but I really thought that I wanted to go to med school and Mm -hmm. so you know freshman year, I'm taking my pre-med courses, sophomore year, I'm taking my pre-med courses. And I just happened to take one foundations, it was foundations of human communication. Mm. And I loved that course right but I was like one track mind I was like this is not what I'm here for I'm going to med school yeah 
my parents know I'm going to med school. Like, mm-hmm. here I go, go, go. And then I took another course that was also like in the communication sciences disorders mm-hmm. umbrella. And I said, huh, okay. And then I took a third course. And by the time I knew it, at the end of my <laughs> sophomore year, I changed my major. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. So what I a twist, right? I know. What an experience. But I'll yeah. tell you what, when you have parents who belong to the diaspora mm-hmm. and when you have immigrant parents and you make you know last minute changes to your you know educational yeah. plan yeah. it is frightening <laughs> um and you are still expected to deliver the same results so even yeah. though i changed my major literally at the yeah. end of my sophomore mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. the expectation was that i was graduating in four years right like mm-hmm. i set you for four mm-hmm. years you're yeah. graduating in four years so i was really like knocking out 18 credits every semester just yeah. like i've made this decision i'm going yeah. to stick by it so yeah. i'm going to do my very best to be you know kind of stick yeah. to my gun and do it in the time that i said that i would yeah. so yeah. That's definitely what a story and it just goes to show like reading back to the story that you said when you were just entering the united states right where mm-hmm. the gift of speech is truly such a valuable gift right yeah. and uh, i mean we've seen this being in healthcare right the ability to actually understand each other and like comprehend each other is such such a difference in yeah. a con- not just in the conversation but the trust that's built between two people right and uh, i mean that's just life right like it takes you to different detours and you end up where you end up even though it may not be your first intention right but it's the place where you're happy and you're meant to be right but even then now that you're helping so many children and you're making Mm -hmm. such a big difference in their lives it was for sure not easy getting to where you are now right both in academics and undergrad and grad school and clinicals in the board exam given the arduous and uh, the long timeline that you had getting Mm -hmm. here do you have any regrets in entering this field in the first place and becoming a certified speech language pathologist now So I would say that is an excellent question, by the way. I would say that I don't have any regrets about entering the field, but I will say that since I have entered the field, that I've discovered other passions Mm -hmm. and other talents. Mm -hmm. And I think something that I'm very grateful for is the fact that I do have my own private practice. So even though I get to do this thing that I love, and I get to do it every day, I get to Mm -hmm. work with wonderful families, Mm -hmm. and I really get to support children and really gaining and accessing their greatest communication potential. Mm -hmm. I think that as a private practice owner, I have the gift of time. And I think that people tend to either take advantage of the gift of time or really not realize how much of a luxury that it is. Because what that's afforded me is time to really explore different passions. So one thing that I didn't mention is before I went to undergrad, I was in a technology-based, project-based high school. And even though, you know, kind of like immigrant child, I'm like, okay, engineer, you know, doctor, lawyer, like pick a lane. Even though I was in, it was like a biomedical cohort, I found myself being really drawn to IT. And so I loved, loved, loved tech. And I also loved design. So something that I've been able to 
really dig into is really like website design. So Mm -hmm. while I was building my practice, I actually designed my entire website. I learned a little bit of coding and I will find Mm -hmm. myself like doing some like custom CSS coding every once in a while. And I find that that brings me joy. And it's nice to be able to supplement Mm -hmm. that with what I'm already doing in speech, right? Like I see my clients, I have a great time. And then when I have my private time, I can do a little bit of coding or when I have my private time, I can really like work on a website or like Mm -hmm. work on logo design. So Mm -hmm. I think definitely I don't have any regrets about joining the field, but Mm -hmm. I think I am extremely lucky to be able to have some downtime to really explore other things that I'm passionate about. Yeah. Speaking of coding, I tried it once and my brain is not hardwired for any of these series of, you know, I have a lot of friends who are software engineers too. Yeah. I was like, my brain is literally going to explode yeah. <laughs> what I'm seeing right now. It's no longer October, but let me tell you a horror story. I was working bedside as a nurse. 12 hour shifts, 12,000 to 15,000 steps per night, always exposed to dripping blood, pee, and other fluids. And guess what? I was wearing skateboarding shoes for almost a year. Because my feet were killing me, I switched to more comfortable sneakers but had to go through three pairs because I would find new stains after shifts. And over time, as the pandemic came, I was too exhausted to think about my feet or even changing my footwear. I was then introduced to Clove, and I no longer had to do the thinking. To support the steps of those who dedicate their lives to caring for others, Clove collaborated with healthcare professionals and innovative designers to create a shoe that prioritizes the needs of those in the front line. These are sneakers designed for healthcare. They already did the thinking. Easy to clean and fluid repellent, I no longer have to worry about those red streaks or pea-soaked socks since I use the same wipes at work to remove every stain. Just this summer, one of my patients unexpectedly bled from the radial artery access site and made a pool in my brilliant whites on the floor. A few swipes with the purple wipes, all clean and with no damage. Plus being squeak-free, I no longer have to worry about waking up a sleeping patient. Layered with comfort, sore toes are no longer my problem since the shoes are now upgraded with double the cushioning, 50% more arch support, and a perfect heel pad. On top of this, the grippiest outsole also allows for a fluid channel technology while maintaining super secure footing. And yes, it's 100% cruelty-free and vegan. I love all of my clothes shoes and I hope that you can get ready to also step into your perfect pair. Use code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, or visit goclothe.com slash friends for 15% off your first pair of clothes shoes at checkout. I am no stranger to seeing patients that can't get the care they need because they can't afford it. Even if they get a medical recommendation that will help them, oftentimes, medication costs are so high it's totally out of reach, or they would have to choose between feeding their family or paying rent in order to get the medication, so people have to go without. After living through a pandemic, on some level, we all know the healthcare system in the United States is broken. That is why I am happy to see that mission-driven businesses are now taking an interest in the problem because it's not getting solved fast enough. Better Remedies is one of those companies doing something to really meaningfully help people with medical expenses, in particular, getting their medications. Better makes over-the-counter medication, think pain, gas, cough and flu, sleep, all the essentials for your medicine cabinet. For every box of Better Remedies sold, they cover the cost of someone's life-saving medication for a month. And this is someone who would otherwise have to choose between food, rent, gas to get to work, or otherwise caring for themselves or their family. It is such an easy switch to make. You get the same great relief you need for 10% less than other big name brands, and someone who doesn't have the access to their meds will get the help they need. 
In general, it's good to know that active ingredients you need for your symptoms rather than just buying a big name brand. It'll save you money, and because active ingredients are FDA regulated, you'll still be getting the results you need. Plus, if you buy from Better, you are also helping someone else in a big way too. It's putting your headaches, farts, and insomnia to work. And that's something we can all feel better about. I've been buying my Better Remedies products at Walmart at any time I need to stock up. And you can do the same. Everything is priced about 10% less than the big brands, works just as well, and makes an impact on something that is really important and that I am personally very passionate about. Make the switch next time you need relief. You'll feel better and be doing some good. Like you said, being a practice owner and having the gift of time. And speaking of time, there's many students out there who are still wandering the world and yeah. trying to find out who they are. And just as a segue, just for a bit into my next question, one of my guests here on the podcast before, she was in medical residency and she dropped out during oh my the gosh. second year. Yes. Yes. And mm-hmm. one of the things that she said was, you know, being in college, we're 17 or 18 years old, yeah. and we're expected to know already what we want for the rest of our lives. When, in fact, we may not even know who we are as a person, right? Yeah. So what would be your message for that young student, or even a post-bac student, or even okay. not a student who are trying to find what they really want to do in life? And it seems like this field of speech is calling them. What would be your message as yeah. an LP? So it's so funny because I really wanted to mention her during our conversation today because I I listened to the podcast and I kind of had a moment where I sat back and I was like, wow, that was brilliant. Chelsea Churgin, right? Yes. Yes. So I watched that podcast episode with you Mm -hmm. and her and I know how difficult it can be to be extremely young and to have these big decisions that will potentially impact the rest of your life or at least the rest of your professional life Mm -hmm. and to be able to make such big decisions. And I think that what she had said about med school is that her decision to go into med school was very superficial. It's like, I'm 17 or I'm 18, I'm going Mm -hmm. into college. I kind of need to pick something. Um, This kind of seems like it's stable financially. um, It's profitable. It's a stable career and everybody's kind of like pushing me in that Mm -hmm. direction. I would say that for any student that is looking to pursue speech language pathology as a career to connect with as many SLPs as possible before your undergraduate education. So when I was an undergrad, even though I had like these searing, not so happy, negative feelings about speech language pathology based on my experience, I actually did an internship year at a local hospital where I Mm -hmm. interned with their rehab department. Mm -hmm. And I was able to, I picked rehab because I knew that I could convince somebody um, to (laughs) let me kind of see everything, right? Because they wanted you to pick a single profession to shadow. And I was like, well, if I go to rehab, I can see speech, I can see OT, I can Mm -hmm. see PT, which -hmm. is what I did. I was like, pretty, pretty, please. Can I split my days in three? And so I spent the mornings with OT, afternoons with speech, and then like the later evening hours with PT. To me, that was very eye-opening. And I really got Mm -hmm. to see what I liked in didn't like Mm -hmm. um, about each profession. So I would say connect as much as you can with professionals before you begin your studies, because it feels like it's a commitment, especially when there's a price tag tied to it. (laughs) So you want to make sure that you're making a good decision for yourself. And I would also say, try to shadow speech language pathologists in different settings, Mm -hmm. because I think, and it goes back to the nomenclature, and I realized I totally didn't answer your question about speech (laughs) therapy, but it goes back to the nomenclature. I think we like hear speech therapy and speech teacher and 
we tend to think that speech language pathologists work in schools with kids and like articulation and stuttering and that's it. But there are so many different facets to speech mm-hmm. language pathology. There are so many different settings. You can work at a hospital, you can work mm-hmm. at a school, you can work in a SNF, you can work in acute care, a NICU, mm-hmm. you can work in ICU, you can really work in a different variety of settings with a yeah. wide range of populations. And we see clients across the lifespan. So I think that if you're really, really interested and you're thinking of making the leap, just on the front end, making sure that you've had as much exposure to the field as possible. Yeah, super, super, super agree that each time a high school student would ask me, oh, I'm torn if I should do nursing or medicine Mm -hmm. or physical therapy. And I always say, you have to shadow. It's not just... The degree after your name. It's not yeah. just the academic or the training, it's the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see yourself in this X amount of hours working every week or every day? Yeah. Is this the kind of lifestyle you want that you may be able to travel, you may not be able to travel? How's the, yeah. How long is the training time? This and this and that. So I super, super agree with the shadowing. Yeah. And I think it's also a mindset of many high school students and undergrads as well. And this was mm-hmm. me too, where well, I'll just pick one now and then I'll enter the field. And then if I don't like it, I'll just switch. You know, yeah. while that is viable and valid, time, again, uh-huh. time is such an important factor. And I, I think the pandemics has shown this is yeah. how short of life can be. It's mm-hmm. okay to be unsure with yeah what you want to do you don't have you don't have to know what you want to do that's why it's so important to shadow and see the people who have gone through it already right so i super Mm -hmm. super super agree with that yeah and i would say also shadow different people i mean i think like different settings is great but also different people because i think with any profession you can very easily walk into a shadowing opportunity where the person might potentially be unhappy or like they're not seeing their ideal client so they're not Mm -hmm. super excited or or they just are not great mentors and they aren't great educators so i feel like even more than just shadowing find Mm -hmm. different people that you can yeah super agree yeah a high school student once told me that oh yeah i shadowed a nurse practitioner but they hated their job so now i don't want to do it and they said you gotta shadow somebody else (laughs) you have to shadow someone who actually loves what they do right Mm -hmm. it's never a good idea to get insight from someone who doesn't want to be there in the first place you know there is someone out there who loves this field there are people who Mm -hmm. love these fields because this feels to be inexistent that people do not find purpose and passion in them right and and that's like you in speech right i mean the detour of how it took where you had your own experience with an slp and then now you're an slp now right and uh, like i said from the beginning one of the main reasons why we're doing this live is because it's your month it's better yeah. speech and hearing month expert A S H A. So a speech language pathologist, I mean your expertise is within this field of speech, of mm-hmm. talking and speech disorders. What does that title of this awareness month mean to you? What does what does it mean to have better yeah. speech? So again, we have to have the nomenclature conversation. So Asha is actually in the process of accepting a new title for the month. (laughs) I'll tell you what it means to me. And then I'll I'll kind of tell you why the title is like a little bit, you know, 
problematic yeah. or can be yeah. reworked. Yeah. So I think to me, Better Hearing and Speech Month is a month where we can really raise awareness about mm-hmm. communication disorders mm-hmm. and the role of SLPs and really providing some of this life-changing treatment, whether it's habilitative or rehabilitative. Mm-hmm. And for me, it really is a time to celebrate communication differences. That's how I see the month and that's how I yeah. try to celebrate it. I think that the name might be a little bit restricting because I think yeah. that Better Hearing and speech almost gives off the sentiment that hearing and speech are the only modalities of communication (laughs) whereas you know that's not true or like the only acceptable modalities Mm -hmm. of communication there are people who communicate using sign there are people who are hard of hearing there are people who are deaf so i think really and there are some people who use aac or communication devices Mm -hmm. or you know tech or non-tech aac and i think that it's really important to perhaps come up with a title for a month that's a little bit more inclusive but i totally agree with the idea that it's really time to raise awareness about communication disorders and really our role and our contributions as SLPs. Mm-hmm. There we yeah. go. Super, super agree with that. And, yeah. you know, I think what I like about our generation, right, is like now is really the time for inclusivity and mm-hmm. the time for us to understand that there are differences and these differences are normal. Yeah. And one of the best things about our job with dealing people, right, is we can truly make an impact in others no matter those differences right i wanted to ask is given that given the impact that you have on the children and for sure their parents as well that we'll talk more about mm-hmm. what do you think is the most rewarding part about your job and what yeah. do you think is the toughest part of your job as an slp yeah so I think that there are many rewards to be an SLP. I think that we get to be part of a team that really supports the client or the patient or the student and really achieving whatever their, their greatest potential is, whether that's in swallowing or communication. Mm-hmm. I think that it's great to be able to see progress in real time. And we get to forge a connection with families because there are many professions where a client is only really presenting themselves to that provider once. Our field really allows us to build connections connections with mm-hmm. a family because we get to see them on a more repetitive basis. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And yeah, I just love being part of a unit and you really do become part of these families' daily lives. And I love to be able to contribute to making a difference to their lives. I don't like the savior complex, so I won't say that I'm doing yeah. it, but I like to, to feel like I am contributing to something yeah. good. I will say one of the biggest challenges is the lack of diversity because our field is only, it's like 92% white mm-hmm. and female. So the lack of diversity can feel very impactful, I think, to providers, but also to prospective clients, because the chance that they will go to a speech language pathologist and see someone who looks like them is very, very slim. So I think that having... And I think maybe we might talk about this a little bit later, but really diversifying the field, right, in the workforce, but also having more people of color and more diversity (laughs) represented in roles that are impactful and really positions of influence. So I would say that that's definitely the biggest challenge. And I think that another challenge is also the misunderstandings about what we do. And it goes back to the name again. We are speech language pathologists 
Sometimes we're speech language therapists, but I think that that really doesn't cover our scope of practice. We work with cognition, we work with swallowing, we work with voice. So I think the fact that we are speech language pathologists and like in some less formal terms, we are speech therapists. People tend to not think of us first when that patient presents to them, right? Right? Like I have this patient here that's having trouble swallowing, trying to think of like who I would refer them to, hmm, speech therapist, a speech language pathologist, like that can be in the back of some people's minds. Yeah. And they just aren't aware of really the range of the things that we can do and the range of services that we can provide. And I feel like that leads to reduced referrals and some clients just aren't getting the services that they need. And I think that also leads to a delay in initiating services because clients are just like not thinking of us because we're not the household healthcare profession. Like you would think of nursing or like a dentist. So I would say that those are two of the biggest challenges or the diversity and also the misunderstandings of what we do. Yeah. I think a big part of it too, right? Is besides delaying referrals and stuff like that, we're doing uh-huh. we're delaying and finding out what's really going on with yeah. the person, right? With the patient, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember this because we had a patient who was having vocal tremors and throat tremors as well. And yeah. the, the first <laughs> the first step was always, oh, refer to the neurologist, right? But yeah. but then the primary care physician was like, Oh no, no, I think the first step should be we should refer them to speech first. Yeah. And find out what's going on first, right? Because yeah. that is their expertise, that is their field. Mm-hmm. And so we see this abounding scope that you have. And like you said, it's sad to say that most of the time we go to different referrals without looking in speech. And I think okay. the good thing with having your own practice, right, is mm-hmm. you really put a stand in, oh, this is what I can do, this is what I was educated and trained to do. And so I wanted to talk more about your practice, coaching yeah. therapy. Yeah. So I thank you. So my practice is Kose speech therapy and Kose actually means chatter in Haitian mm-hmm. Creole. Um, one of my mentors, Dr. AC Goldberg, actually, um, he helped me with finding my name and he wanted to really help me find a name that was that had cultural meaning. Um, And I think that that makes like the practice even more of my baby, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I started my practice last year. It's a pediatric private practice and we provide services in a range of different modalities. So Mm -hmm. we do in-home services Mm -hmm. and we also provide um, services in the daycares and um, children's schools. And we also provide services via teletherapy for families that are outside of Bergen County. And I think that in starting my own private practice, I was one really seeking to take agency in my career and really in my professional development. And also I was looking to fill this need and this gap for families who could really benefit and children Mm -hmm. who could really benefit from getting services in their natural environment because Mm -hmm. so much learning can happen in the natural environment. And I think that it's one thing to see clients in the clinic for, you know, 30 minutes. Sometimes parents are allowed with COVID Sometimes parents aren't even allowed to be in the therapy room. So parents aren't really getting exposure to some of the therapeutic strategies that we use. Or if they are in the room, we're kind of running the sessions and then saying, okay, I want you to practice S, Y, and Z. And then we're kind of shooing parents out of the door. So where I'm feeling the need is going into the house, I really get to incorporate families and caregivers, not necessarily always mom and dad, but sometimes it's the daycare teacher, sometimes it's grandma, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the nanny, really sitting in on sessions. And it's more like a coaching model. So we're doing the activities. I'm showing you what strategies 
recipes I'm using. Now I want it to be your turn. Yeah. Um, and what that does is it really empowers parents to feel like I have the tools to be able to support my child's learning versus only the therapist can do this when the therapist is not here. I'm kind of lost. So that's really the need that I felt like I could I could meet for a lot of families. And it's also more comfortable for the children. I mean, yeah. it can be kind of a traumatic experience to take your kids somewhere and then you have someone kind of like yeah. in their face and tell them what to yeah. do. And it's like such a new environment. Yeah. So really going yeah. into the home is so important. Yeah, that's beautiful. And also it gives the parents a sense of agency as well, right? It's kind of like yeah. your agency. And it's kind of like almost a virtual home health kind of care, right? Where yeah. you get to teach them these strategies or whatnot that they can also use where they also have that feeling that, oh, I'm also helping my child in this regard as well, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a big question of mine too is, given that you explained your practice, which is mainly for children, I want to know the bread and butter of your work. Yeah. If, if we say that there are, on a given day, there's this top two to three things of the reasons why parents are reaching out to you, why children are needing to be seen by you. What did yeah. those top things to be? Yeah. So it's usually a suspected speech or language delay. So children who are not communicating appropriately according to milestones, which would be kind of like expected gain of skills. So usually the kiddos who are coming into my practice are late talkers. The other portion of the kiddos who are coming into my practice are having trouble really refining their sounds or having age appropriate sounds. They're really unintelligible. So that's more articulation. Sometimes it's like a motor speech disorder or there might be something going on that's oral motor related. So I would say that's a bulk of my, the clients that are coming into my practice are speech delays, language delays, and also articulation. But I have a niche, right? My specialty is early language development. So I really Mm -hmm. work with kids who are zero to three. And I have my clinicians who kind of work with a scope of um, different pediatric clients and disorders. So I think that when clients are coming into the practice, they know that this is what I specialize in and this is the service that I provide. But that can vary in different settings, right? So the clients that I'm seeing are not the clients that, you know, are being seen in the NICU or being seen in the SNF. So I think it really depends on the setting. Got it. And I know that you said that your population is mostly zero to three years old. Yeah. So I wanted to tag this along with a statistic that the NIH said, which is around 5% of children ages three to 17, which is obviously not usually the population that you see, are found to have speech disorders that's lasting more than 12 months. As someone who's seeing the ages before that, which actually progresses onto the latter years. Do you see a reason for this statistic? Is there a pattern that you see as to why we have ever-increasing rates of speech disorders in children? Yeah, I don't know that there is necessarily a trend. And I think Mm -hmm. like in prepping for this conversation, we had Mm -hmm. talked about, you know, possibilities of electronics and really a high use of technology impacting or not enough outdoor play really impacting, impacting speech and language development. I will say that there is a statistic that does say that when children play outdoors, they use three times as much language as they would indoor because it's a different like multi-sensory experience and it really gives children a lot more to comment and talk about. I will kind of give some tips and some indications to maybe support parents. I will say that a lot of parents, they don't feel comfortable engaging 
with their children in a way that is meaningful enough to be able to support their learning and speech and language. And I will say that, so limiting, if possible, the use of electronics and technology, Mm. but also taking some time to really incorporate speech and language into that use of technology in TV shows. So Mm. if you're watching a TV show with your little one, right, commenting on what you see, describing things, having them point to Mm. what they see, and really Mm -hmm. making it more functional, because what can happen is that when they are watching their TV shows or like the music, the language isn't super functional, right? So we want to find ways that we can make it more functional for them so that we are actually encouraging speech and language skills and not just kind of having them watch a show. So that's what I would kind of say regarding that. Yeah, and speaking of like going out and having fun and playing three times more usage of speech, right? (laughs) I think this was challenged by a huge magnitude by the pandemic. (laughs) I mean, we have kids now that we call our COVID babies who really spent the first two years of their life inside their houses on the phones, right? Talking to each other on the phone or if they can't speak, right? They're literally just inside the house and not socializing with other children. How do you think that changed the ability of children to receive speech and language? Do you think that has a lasting effect on them? And I think I'm tagging this question along on, have you seen a difference in your clients pre-pandemic and now? So I've definitely seen an increase in referrals. And even prior to me opening my own private practice, we were just getting flooded with referrals. And I think maybe a couple of things are happening. There is a lack of social interaction that was happening really during the pandemic that really affected all of us, not just Mm -hmm. children. And I think that also some parents were working, right? Some parents were working and really not having the time to have those meaningful interactions that were encouraging speech and language. And I think that also a lot of families were experiencing economic hardship. And we know that with lower economic, socioeconomic status, that children tend to be more at risk for developmental delays. But on the flip side, there were lots of children who were thriving because Mm -hmm. parents were at home, right? These parents were at home, they had time because they were working from home. And some, not all professions allowed parents to really spend time with their children, even during their working hours. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely that there has been an increase. And I feel like with parents spending more time with their children also, that it really gave them more opportunity to observe that things were not going, you know, the way that they were supposed to, that milestones really weren't being achieved. You know, my child is not talking, but it's like that realization happens because you spend more time. So I think that the the pandemic in terms of the presentation or kind of like the referrals that we get has had, you know, it has had an impact, good and bad. And I just want to point out also that, you know, lots of providers and parents will also talk about, you know, the lack of social interaction and that impacting development because children are not getting to play with other people. But what's really important for parents to remember, because parents can feel really guilty, right? Like my child is in the house, I'm scared to go outside, there's COVID, etc, etc, is that, you know, you are your child's primary teacher, you're your child's first teacher. And when children are under three, all of their social needs are actually met by the parent, in fact, and primary caregiver. Um, So a lot of parents were feeling guilty during the pandemic that, you know, this happens because I was not able to take them out to the park, you know, I feel really bad that I can't take them because you know groups are restricted or etc etc but it's also important to understand that you can foster learning for your own child and that they get a bulk of their social needs really met by parents when they're that young
having worked as a nurse in cardiac surgery recovery and outpatient interventional cardiology, I learned that listening is a vital part of the field. But beyond listening to what patients say, it is also important to hear what they don't say. And many times, you can hear this in the stillness and quietness of the room as their chest thumps and rhythms that can range from normalcy to urgency. A person's heartbeat is not only a sign of life, but also a sign of its quality. According to the CDC, arrhythmias, or abnormal heart sounds, have an expected prevalence of about 1.5% in the general population, with atrial fibrillation being the most common. This is why it is so important that we can adequately hear and detect heart and even lung sounds that may be detrimental to human life. ECHO provides smart digital stethoscopes, such as the 3M Letman Core Digital Stethoscope, that help you check for signs of heart and lung disease in seconds during physical exams with unprecedented enhanced stethoscope sound and automated detection. This is all through a quick pairing with your mobile device. This is made possible by features such as having up to 40 times amplification, active noise cancellation, wireless listening, auto-triggered heart murmur and atrial fibrillation detection, and real-time visualization of sound and ECG that you can share as a consult with a trusted colleague or specialist. Every patient encounter deserves exceptional care. Hear clearly and care confidently with ECHO. The virtual space is flooded with so many different brands, resources, and gears made for healthcare workers from all disciplines. From scrubs to pins and even compression socks, it can truly get overwhelming trying to find the best product fit for you. Links to these items can get lost, and the list can get so long that you forget what you actually needed to purchase for your next work shift. This is why I am so grateful to partner with Lumify, the community marketplace for healthcare workers all in one app. Finding the brands you love, discovering new tools, and accessing your resources and communities shouldn't be difficult. Instead of going to 50 different websites to access what you need, you can find it all on Lumify, where over 200 brands, organizations, and resources are united with one goal, to support healthcare workers. As a nurse-founded company, Lumify believes that all healthcare professionals deserve a trusting and supportive community of their peers. In Lumify, you can easily communicate with your peers to trade advice, share product recommendations, and discuss what resources are best to support you. You can even earn Lumify points on every purchase you complete, which you can save for product discounts. Whether it's mental health resources, or fluid-resistant shoes, high clove, or stethoscopes, high echo, or podcast, welcome to Friends of France, Lumify is trusted by over 75,000 healthcare professionals at the bedside and beyond, including myself. Enter this new healthcare ecosystem where you can get 10% off using the code LUMIFYFRANZ, that's L-U-M-I-F-Y-F-R-A-N-Z, at LUMIFYCARE.com or the Lumify app available for download on iOS devices. It's a one-stop shop, and I hope you drop by. This is a question that I always love asking, especially pediatric physicians. Yeah. Well, I had pediatric rotations too back in nursing school. And yeah. what I realized is it's not just the child who's yeah. your patient. <laughs> it's more of the parents as well. Yeah. And as someone whose expertise is within kids and obviously their parents, how do you balance that concept of this is my expertise right i know how to deal with your kids but and this is what i think is right for them based on my practice based on evidence based on science how do you balance that with the primary caregivers or the parents who believes that this way is best for their kids how do you balance that well i think it's extremely egotistic for 
any provider to, you know, outright state or believe that they know absolutely what is best for anybody's child. I think that parents, families, and primary caregivers, they know their children the best. Mm -hmm. So we should really take into Mm -hmm. account their opinions, their beliefs, and their understandings of what the therapeutic process Mm -hmm. is. We should really take that into account when we're designing a therapeutic plan of care. And so that's what I would advise to anyone. That's what I do. So when I do my intake calls, for example, I tell families that, you know, we will go through the evaluation process in the home. And then at the end, we'll take some time to debrief. I'll talk about what I've seen. You'll talk about what you've seen. I'll propose some goals and then we'll discuss together some collaborative goals. So what would you like to see happen in the home? Because as a provider, I know what the milestones are. I know what this child is supposed to be working on and doing. But the family also has input on what the goals should be and what they would like. So I think should not be a difficult thing to balance. But I can see how sometimes professionals really think like, I am the authority on this. I know what's best. This is what we're doing. And really, when we don't include families, it can really shut them out and they can feel like they maybe they should not have reached out or they can really start to have some resentments against, you know, a field. So I think it's important to really include the family in the planning and also include families in the treatment as well. Yeah, definitely. Because that lack of collaboration, right, that also like brings up a fourth wall where there's a lack of trust, a lack of what well, trust and communication, but also trust that, oh, do they actually care for me and what I have yeah. to say? And it blocks away that potential, again, that we talked earlier for that extension of agency to them and mm-hmm. what to do for their children, right? You know, I love really, really talking about all of this. And yeah. it really shows the power that the field of speech has, right? Well, your field of speech. And yeah. I wanted to know, like, what's your biggest hope for your field of speech language pathology in the months to come in the years to come yeah so i i would definitely tie it back to the diversity piece i really hope that over you know the next few years or like at least the next decade that there is an increase of diversity in the field but also harping on the fact that what what i would really love is for there to be more diverse slps and positions of influence i think it's one thing to you know kind of like try your best to flood the fields with you know black and brown and lat like latin um slps but if they're not in positions of power then it feels very Mm -hmm. performative and I feel like for example better hearing you know in speech month I really wonder if there was you know (laughs) if the room looked different maybe back in 1972 or if it looked different like five years ago um, if anyone would have stopped to say hey you know, this name is not very inclusive. It's a little bit problematic. Let's think about it. And I know Ingrid, actually, she's watching the live. Um, she's part of the Boat SLP Collectives. And I know that the Coda SLP, they also touched on it. So they're part of a small group of SLPs who are really saying like, hey, let's really stop and have a conversation here. Mm-hmm. So I think that really diversity and inclusivity is something that I would love to see for our field because it's such an important field. And when you think about just human existence, 
communication is so critical, right? Like whatever form of communication it is, whether you're signing, whether you're using, you know, nonverbal communication, mm-hmm. whether you're pointing, et cetera, human beings want to feel like th- they can get their messages across and they want to feel like they can communicate their feelings and their needs and et cetera. So I think what other field should we, you know, focus on really putting diverse faces in? I think that I would also love for speech to become like a household, like healthcare profession just yeah. like dentistry is just like yeah. nursing is just like yeah. surgery is because communication is so vital and I think that a lot of times people don't know about speech therapy until something has gone wrong yeah. right or until there's been a loss of function and I would love for people to kind of know about us before that there we yeah. go yeah and you know with all of that it's we're like especially in healthcare right? we're like sponge it's like yeah. We've taken a lot of things, especially, I can't imagine all of the sentiments that the parents talk to you about, their children. Mm-hmm. I get so many questions. Why is my child speaking late? Why milestones not being met? This, this, and that. In a field of care and, you know, like serving others, mm-hmm. a lot of times our emotions are an expense of it, right? Yeah. And I can't imagine after a long day of work and after a session with a client, right, with a patient. It's like you give not just your physical, but your emotional and your mental. Yeah. How do you decompress out of all yeah. of the, of the day? Yeah, so I, I will say I used to be the SLP who was like ingrained and enthralled in like everyone's yeah. life. And I mm-hmm. felt like I was taking some of those emotions home. Mm-hmm. And so I actually did a live with another colleague. Um, mm-hmm. We did something about vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's trauma that people in healthcare professions experience because they have exposure to traumatic events and traumatic stories. And if you really don't watch out and really look out for the signs, you can find yourself in a much worse place where you really can't even you know, help the people that you want to. So I recognize that in myself. And so I started to do the things that brought me joy. So one of the things that I like to do, which is like such a juxtaposition to the person that I am in my practice, is I like to watch like cop dramas and like Queen of the South. I love it. You know, oh I like to watch those kinds of shows in like Chicago PD where things are moving fast. There's a lot of actions. So, you know, things it. are a little bit dangerous. Um, so I will watch that. I'll feel really excited. And then yeah. the next day I'll go into work and I'll be cheery and peppy and we're playing with bubbles. There we go. Um, but that's really what brings yeah. me joy. I like to do that. I also like cars. I like fast cars. You know, the car that I have right now is not, you know, a, a race car, but it's my <laughs> therapy car. I need something there we that's go. that I can drive from house to house. There but you if go. I had my choice, I would be rolling out in a, you know, a, in a charger, <laughs> not a charger every day. I love cars. I love cars that go fast. That makes my heart beat. Yeah. I like Home Depot. I like, you know, small little projects. <laughs> so I can go into Home Depot and I like to buy tools. I like to patch things up. Like there that is my my jam. I did used to love plants, but I realized that I kill them. So this one is not real. <laughs> oh my gosh. I forget yes. to water my plants. That's why I just stopped. Yes. I either would forget to water my plants or I would water my plants too much. And it's just like, you know, you lose one, you lose the other. Yeah. So we're there doing we this. Everybody thinks it's real. Let's keep it. Mm-hmm. Let's keep it going. But that's what I like. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep that, Let's keep that, it that way. way. Let's keep it I that love way. it. See, it's but so yeah. important that we have like an escape, right? Like 
we mm-hmm. we have ways that we can decompress out of work especially like you said from long days of those mm-hmm. that become common as well and yeah i just love hearing things that healthcare professionals do to decompress after yeah. a long conversation of what they do at work and yeah and how they manifest everything that they have studied and trained for into finally, you know, hoping to help others. And yeah. I just love that we were able to speak about speech and your field and yeah. a fun conversation. I learned so much. And, you know, it's just an overarching message of how many fields within healthcare are yeah. not really thought of until, until, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why... I super agree that it needs to be a household name in healthcare because it is such an important field. And I'm so happy that I was able to talk to such a great representative of the field, which is you. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much, Chris. Also, you... You're fabulous, but I think that you know that already. But you're fabulous, and the work that you do is just so important. And I feel like you bring so much awareness of of different fields and fields that really people wouldn't normally think about. And you really bring it to a big platform. So thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, you know, having worked in hospitals and nursing Mm -hmm. homes and in clinics, there's so many specialties and fields that the general public do not know. And I think the problem is that is what we don't know, we don't seek help from, right? So it's so Mm -hmm. important that we seek help from those who are actually experts in the field, have trained and get in this field. And because many of them are not household names in healthcare, sadly, people do not even know to look out for them and to seek them. And what ends up happening, it's a constant detour of trying to find out what's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's so important that we get to speak to diverse, diverse groups of different people in healthcare. And it is such an honor that we were able to speak about your field again. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much, Chris. I hope you enjoy the rest of your snack if you still have. Yes, thank you. I'm always snacking. I was like, oh, let me like sneak a little piece. No, I had a snack right like three minutes before I clicked the start button. I love that. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Have a good night. We have now reached the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of France. I hope you had an enjoyable adventure learning about our expert guest, their work, and why they do the things that they do. Please check out the rest of the series available on all podcast platforms. Please also consider following the podcast on the platform that you prefer. Turn on the alerts for new episodes so you don't miss new stories. And give us a rating to support the show. You can find more updates on the podcast's official Instagram at Friends of France Pod or my personal Instagram at Chris France. That's without the I because there is no I in team. <laughs> I'm kidding. Someone already took the username. Have a great day or night, everybody.